Welcome to the Spirit Lake Wellness Podcast with Dr. John Ewing and Kathy Kocher. Today they'll discuss attachment strategies in adulthood. Hi, Kathy. Hi, John. How are hey. you doing today? Good. Good, good, good. Yeah. What else going on in your world? You know, the usual um, chemo, mindfulness, self-care, those kinds of things. And um, thinking about attachment issues lately. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, sometimes when somebody has had um, critical illness or uh, death uh, of a loved one, sometimes people don't know what to say. And sometimes when somebody has a serious illness, people won't talk to you about it. And they're almost afraid to be with you because they're afraid of bringing up something painful. I've noticed that when people come over to visit and I, I have started just saying when they come in the door, you can say that we'll be wrong. And I'm yeah. totally okay with talking about everything. Good. And then you can just see the relief. Ah. <sighs> <laughs> yeah, because no, that is, that is helpful. there's a lot of isolation in our world. And in fact, some people have commented on an epidemic of loneliness. And um, it's strange to think that we have so much access to connect with people online. So why would people feel lonely and isolated? And it's an interesting question. I think some of the answer might be in how we how we connect with people. Some people don't really feel a connection unless they're touching or, you know, 18 inches apart from each other, while other people can feel connected via Zoom or Google Meet. Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel a much better connection when I'm in person with people and mm. rather than uh, uh, on the telephone or uh, via Zoom. Yeah. Uh, it's almost like Zoom creates this atmosphere of you must keep talking. <laughs> you must keep saying something, even though sometimes these pauses are actually pretty important. Yes. When clinical supervision for my fellow therapists, I would say, don't be afraid of silence. Track it. See who's the first to break silence. Let it, let it be there. Because yeah. it's not, it's not nothing. It, silence is something. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of times our anxiety will propel us to keep talking and talking and filling space, almost as if we're warding off the things that actually matter. I think that sometimes that can be a defense mechanism or a function of anxiety for people that if they keep control over the topic or the discussion and keep it moving in a certain direction, then they don't have to deal with the anxiety of what if they ask me this or what if somebody wants to know that. Yeah. And for people that don't have a detachment base um, that's been disrupted by trauma or, or addiction um, 
feeling unsafe is a common feeling. Yeah. Yeah, I uh, listened to this uh, book uh, in audio format called Attached. And oh. they reviewed the different attachment styles. And as I was listening to this, uh, the authors seem to indicate that, oh, yes, many people have an attachment style and it's learned in early childhood. And although it can change, it usually doesn't. And I'm thinking, actually, what I'm hearing here are attachment strategies. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So we have secure attachment, in which case, uh, well, gee, you know that the people will always be there for you, and you really can't blow it, and so you can be you. And then there's anxious attachment, which, yes, there, I mean, in relationships, there's a certain amount of rupture and repair, of moving closer, moving away, and then of sharing space. And with anxious attachment, very often one of the things that gets activated is protest behaviors. For example, when the young child's mother leaves, the child will protest, often loudly and with the one word that they know, wham. <laughs> <laughs> and so looking then at uh, this uh, activation system where our attachment system gets activated uh, and then produces the protest behaviors. Uh, that might be a useful way of looking at things. And so then this uh, uh, attachment system, when it's activated, it often shows up as anxiety. And that constitutes a big part, I think, of a lot of our conversations and relationships is trying to, to make sure that we're not blowing it, that we're not losing uh, or, or ruining that relationship with others. That's a really good point. You know, I, I see that play out a lot in people I work with and, and even in people I socialize with where there's this fear that, oh, did I do something wrong? Did I say the wrong thing? Are we still okay? Um, and taking that back to that attachment piece where, you know, as children have, you know, maybe that's how they were learned to learn to see the world that, you know, they have to be just so, or the people that they are attached to are going to walk away or not be there. And that may not even be grounded in reality. Yeah. You know, so, their attachment yeah. figure may have to work two jobs and just isn't present and right. has nothing to do with the child. Yeah. And then many times there's a, a performative aspect to our relationships where we find ourselves filling a role and doing what we think the other person wants to see and reflecting what we think we should desire rather than what we actually desire. And so we end up running around with this false space, this mask that we put on. And I think sometimes when people are getting to know one another in, a, in an intimate way, for example, when they're dating, um, the 
one partner might want to portray themselves in a particular way to be attractive and the other partner might do that also. Then there's a honeymoon phase where people act out this script and then all of a sudden, whoops, <laughs> the mask starts to get some cracks in it and you realize, oh wait, this person is, is way different from, from what I had hoped. Yeah. That can be hard. How to how to present our authentic and genuine selves when we may not have figured who that figured out who that is yet. Yeah, that's true. And is there space for us to figure that out? Um, for us to try out different uh different ways of being to see if uh, we will fit in with our group. And I can see that, yes, particularly um, uh, in a hunter-gatherer society, uh, getting kicked out of the group, getting pushed away from the, from the food, uh, mm -hmm. getting pushed away from the campfire, having to go out there and deal with the lions, tigers, and bears all on your own, that could be pretty darn painful and scary. Well, it, 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 it's survival. You've yeah. now decreased your chances of survival. And I think as, as mammals, you know, when we're born and we're so dependent, you know, that attachment is, is also survival. Yeah. Um, so there's uh, uh, the activated attachment uh, system. So when when uh, there's threatened abandonment or actual abandonment, the attachment system, we'll just call it that for, for simplicity, gets activated and then produces protest behaviors, which might show up inside of us as self-criticism. And these protest behaviors can often uh, swell up into that anxiety and that fear of rejection and being isolated and abandoned. Um, so then many people seek ways of being with others, especially others like themselves. And sometimes people, when they're coming of age, might use substances in an effort to connect with one another. Uh, so trying to fit in, trying to find that connection. Right. So many times people will have, uh, uh, to a certain extent, relationships are a shared story, a shared history. And so you can draw on all of these uh, sort of memes, as it were, from your shared history to develop an understanding and share your world with somebody. And so these shared adventures are very helpful to create those bonding experiences and to strengthen those relationships. And sometimes in our modern world, rather than go hunting or going out exploring or, or engaging in various uh, activities to gather food, although some people do shop together, uh, sometimes people will use substances 
And so then the adventure is to uh, indulge in this use of a substance and have a shared experience and, and then connect with other people. Do you think that that connection, because it's happening in an altered state, do you think that is equal to equal to more real or less real than an attachment that you develop when you're a child or an infant? I think that it, it uh, can definitely be real. Uh, the problem is that the relationship then, uh, it's almost like the basis of the relationship involves different activities, different rituals of substance use. Yeah, uh, it makes me think of uh, state learning. You know, if you learn something, you know, when you're sitting in your living room, recalling it is harder to do when you're sitting in a classroom or sitting in a library and, and the, you know, just the idea of whatever state you're in and, and then your emotional state. If you're learning something with you when you're very happy and then you're trying to recall it when you're in a very different mood, sometimes that can have a little barrier too. Yeah. So when I was listening to this uh, book on attachment styles, mm -hmm. uh, they listed three major attachment styles. They listed secure attachment, anxious attachment and avoidant. And they pointed out that very often the anxious people will be attracted by the avoidant and that the avoidant would be attracted to the anxious. Because, oh, yeah, because it's evidently, um, it, it strokes the ego of the avoidant person to have this anxious person following after them and trying to, to please them and to attach. And, um, on the, and on, on the other hand, people that have had a lot of trauma in childhood or difficulty with their attachments, oftentimes see the, um, the activated attachment system as passion and love. And so they confuse that clinging towards a person as uh, being uh, passionate and intense and as chemistry. So it's like this uh, incredible dance in those that don't have the secure attachment style to to have this one partner that is pulling back and uh, avoiding. Now the avoidant will use what they call deactivation strategies. So the deactivation strategies help to dampen the uh, responses of that uh, activated attachment system. Now that, that makes sense to me thinking about different situations that I've heard that described as come here, go away behavior. Yes. Yes. Come here, go away, come here, go away. And that's that's a dance that a lot of people find themselves in that, that is, if you're, you're overwhelming, I need my space. You want me, now you don't. You know, kind yeah. of different messages that way. Yeah. Okay. So the uh, 
uh, they've done actual like physiologic monitoring of people and they're able to measure uh, increased autonomic system activity, sympathetic uh, nervous system activity when the anxious type person encounters a, a break or a, a pause or uh, some distance in the relationship, the, the person becomes activated and anxious. Yeah. And so they've also demonstrated that the avoidant person experience or, or rather their physiology manifests the same sort of, of uh, sympathetic nervous system activation, but they suppress the expression of those feelings. And so that's the value of those deactivation strategies. Which is interesting because those coping mechanisms to manage the activation of those strategies seems to keep them from getting what they want, which is that connection with another person. Right. Yeah. And it's almost like... Um, uh, they've gone beyond uh, anxious attachment into a sort of despair, almost a sour grapes approach that, oh, well, this, this is, it's terrible to be so needy and uh, <laughs> to think that, that you actually need to attach. Um, it's just uh, uh, almost like a despair. Yeah, so I've been fascinated by, you know, 25, 30 years ago, we only talked about attachment in the context of infants and very young children and never talked about what an unattached or a not adequately attached person would look like as they got older. And I, I remember um, going to a training probably 15 years ago now where they talked about an unattached adult. And I was like, whoa never thought of that i thought you know like adhd i thought oh yeah you turn 18 it just goes away which we know it doesn't <laughs> um but it was a fascinating experience and the things i learned in there I've, I've really um kind of experienced to be accurate is that you you tend to collect things because it's safer to have things around you than it is to have relationships with people so an unattached adult may have the collection of, um, I don't know why I think of it, Hummel figurines or model cars or, you know, dolls or pets or something where it's, it's a safe attachment because the risk of getting hurt by those things is limited. They also tend to be alone. And, you know, the, the example I remember they used it, you know, that's the 50 year old that's bitter. And I'm thinking, well, I'm, I'm over 50 and I'm, I'm not bitter. And I know that I'm not securely attached. So it's, it's kind of, I'm waiting for the bitterness to come. <laughs> it hasn't hit yet. But, yeah. but it was interesting to look at how that, how that would progress in a person's lifespan. Yeah. And then it turns out that we all have this attachment script that mm -hmm. happens especially with romantic relationships um, it's almost like birds when they're even in the egg they learn this particular call and oh yes this is what this means 
And so then when they grow up and they engage in mating behavior, sometimes then they will respond to or use those calls. And um, so some once in a great while, they'll end up with the wrong type of bird. <laughs> it is fascinating, though, because we talk a lot about complementary relationships. And, you know, I do it drew a diagram of two puzzle pieces one time to explain complementary relationships. It was a poor choice, but it made sense at the time. But it it is, you know, you approach the world this way and you're looking for someone that approaches the world in a way that complements or fits your worldview, like, like two puzzle pieces. And yeah. if that's how you grow up in a complementary relationship with a caregiver, you're going to go through life looking for that same type of relationship, which is why, you know, son, my son married my, married my mother. You know, I mean, he married a person very much like me. Yeah. And, you know, I, I've done the same, you know, look, you know, having relationships with people that remind me a lot of my father. Yeah. Um, just because of that complementary concept. And so if, if you are raised by someone if, if the chirping bird when you're in the egg is someone who's anxious and has challenges and isn't sure about attaching or is anxious about being a mother, um, that's that's what you're gonna, I'm gonna say imprint on. And then that, I get it, the script, that makes a lot of sense. Thanks for kind of letting me verbally explore that in my own, in my own way. So then uh, what can sometimes happen uh, a young woman that has uh, anxious attachment strategies and tendencies. I like uh, tendencies rather than style. Um, but she's uh, seen a lot of strife and abuse and tension. And so when she encounters uh, somebody that's fairly secure in their attachment, then they don't feel any chemistry. It's boring. Or worse yet, when there's no uproar, then they start to feel anxious. Yeah. And oftentimes they will even then provoke their partner into some kind of conflict so that they can soothe that anxiety and feel real. And then very often the partner that they find is avoidant and... <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's almost like we spend our lives looking for what's familiar mm -hmm. and when it's not familiar we don't quite know how to handle it so we try to we try to make it be familiar yeah and then sometimes that that means we don't have the relationship that we thought we wanted yeah so many times when people get together and they they might be anxious uh, so they use substances to alter the mood um, they might use a state of activation as well as uh, something to decrease their anxiety so that they can stop being a wallflower and connect with this other person Mm -hmm. And then after a while, the repeated substance use 
eventually becomes uh, a deactivation technique, a technique of soothing your emotions because the activation part of the process goes away with repeated use. Yeah. It's almost then, like, go ahead. And then again, it's, it's, they're not, they're not connecting with someone from a place of authenticity and genuineness. They're connecting with someone through the lens of the substance use. Right. So what, I mean, it's almost like, you know, shooting yourself in the foot right before a race. It's, this is, I can't see how this can be helpful in the long term. Yeah. One of the things I run into over and over again is, uh, oh, I need this substance for my anxiety. You know, I have anxiety and that's why I have to use this substance. And it's kind of hard to get them to realize that, oh my goodness, you have more anxiety than you would because of the, uh, uh, the after effects of that substance. <laughs> That boomerang effect, yes. Yeah. I, I have a couple beers to, to relax, but then the next morning I wake up and I'm just a teeny bit more anxious than I was yesterday. Yeah. So what sometimes happens is that people's uh, use of a substance is repeated and then they end up with these increasingly dysphoric after effects. And so they start using the substance to soothe themselves and calm themselves down, basically from the withdrawal symptoms. Mm -hmm. So then, although their use started out as an effort to attach and connect with other people, then it evolves into uh, this state of guarding your supply, and using alone and staying alone and then instead of uh uh then what happens basically with your attachment system is that the substance becomes a deactivation strategy mm -hmm. to deactivate that distress but it's still there yeah loneliness is still there so yeah looking at this uh using this attachment lens then to look at relationships. Um, we use different attachment strategies depending on the type of relationship that we're engaged in. Uh, for example, at work, uh, uh, playing games with our friends, with our intimate others, with our relatives, um, we use different different strategies so then when our expectations are not met when we do something for somebody and then we don't feel like they're they're getting back to us uh, what we had hoped for a lot of times then our energy escalates and we protest and uh, that energy escalation that can be a uh, pulling back away from that other person. Um, yeah, it's kind of interesting to look at that attachment lens and see, okay, how many things can we apply this to before the idea becomes less useful? Well, it's fascinating because, you know, it's something that, I mean, for myself as a clinician, it's like, 
okay, how do I make it better? How do I fix this? How do I help this person get to a spot where they can have normal attachment, relation, normally attached relationships? And I do believe that to be possible. It takes, it's hard work and it takes time. And the older the person is, the longer it takes to affect change that way. But I'm also hearing that it's also a matter of fit. Yeah. You know, so if, if someone is part of a couple and they want to work on their attachment issues, that might result in that no longer being a good fit with that person in their couple. Well, I think it's particularly true if uh, you start labeling people as having attachment styles. Mm -hmm. uh, so if I say, oh, well, you're an avoidant, and then whenever uh, you as an anxious try to attach that avoidant person, you're just going to get disappointed. You know, it's like... Uh, uh, planting an apple and expecting to get grapes. You're just never going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> <an> excellent point. <laughs> so uh, if we change the conversation just a little bit and we look at strategies, and then there's, there's this also, this almost, um, uh, I noticed when I was listening to the book, uh, kind of a little bit of a uh, judgment uh, twist on the avoidant mm. and not seeing that actually this avoidant person has the same attachment needs and desires. They also have the same activation and protest behaviors, but the protest behavior manifests as a deactivation strategy to try to de-escalate and deactivate uh that energy so that they won't get hurt so it's like a protective mechanism mm -hmm. but yeah as i read through the or as i listened to the to the book on attachment styles i found myself thinking okay yeah we use different attachment strategies in different situations and yes we can update our strategies and at its core is still this desire to connect with and to understand and be understood by other people. Yeah. So then you mentioned bitterness and despair. <laughs> I try to keep things light, John. <laughs> I know, I know. But yeah, oh my goodness. You know, when you look at how we're, uh, the script that we're taught about what is success mm -hmm. uh, in our intimate relationships it's like let's maybe we could throw that away and be people i think you're talking about self-actualization <laughs> when, you, when you climb up that hierarchy of needs and you get to that spot where you're like yeah yeah, I can just be me. I can be I can be enough. I don't have to try and be someone I'm not so that I can be accepted. I can just be me. Yeah. Uh, for yeah. example, yeah, if you're, uh, uh, say, you're a low-level worker, maybe even a 
temporary worker and oh my gosh pleasing the boss and fitting in and doing you know uh being part of the machine is yeah it's part of your survival and so yeah you're gonna very much tune into and pay attention to whether or not the boss likes you or not and um, there might not be other opportunities so yeah it's hard to think about uh uh about not trying to uh, experience that anxiety when yeah it might be related to uh having food having a place to sleep mm-hmm. uh, safety yeah yeah well it's not fair that self-actualization is on the top of that pyramid um and you're right it does it does require that all those things below it have been met or accounted for in some way you know you feel safe you feel secure in your housing and food supply you feel a sense of belonging in in whatever you choose to call your tribe family friends whatever and then you can move up to that that place where you can you can be be who you really feel is you yeah yeah but back to that whole thing about attachment and having those supportive mutually beneficial or reciprocal relationships Mm -hmm. it's like this is i think something that that we find most valuable and that we seem to be having, I don't know, are we having less of it, do you think, in our society? I don't know. Some people say we are less attached because of social media. Some people say we're less attached because we have two working parent families. Um, I don't know that that's necessarily the case. I know in my anecdotal experience with people I know that are in couples seem to be pretty attached. I think it's I think it goes back to, you know, the hierarchy of needs. If you are still thinking about safety because you have an abuse history or you're living in poverty or you've, you know, for for whatever reason you're not feeling safe and you don't have your needs met, I think it's hard to take those next steps to kind of figuring out, well, you know, was I securely attached? You know, (laughs) I think that's kind of higher up the pyramid to kind of start having those thoughts. Yeah. And and some people can't get there. And I think it's hard to get there. And then there's also things that we come into the world naturally with, you know, birth defects, cognitive issues. Um, I think some people don't want to look at what might have contributed to their life being a certain way there's a better way to say that yeah i i'm i'm i what comes to mind when i listen to you is uh good enough parenting yes and maybe instead of secure attachment there's like good enough attachment Mm -hmm. where the frantic efforts to 
change yourself or find someone or to get them engaged in connecting with you is not necessary if you've had a good enough attachment so maybe we're not using the right word maybe instead of secure maybe it's like a good enough attachment i i like that yeah that makes a lot of sense yeah so okay a good enough attachment um anxious attachment strategies rather than style and then deactivating strategies which some people would call avoidance strategies yeah yeah i can see how this dovetails into uh the attraction to using substances with others to try to create a group and and then um, the unfortunate tendency of that to evolve into solitary use and we're getting the substance to avoid horrible withdrawal becomes the, mm-hmm. the whole focus of your existence yeah and just how this this whole issue of of attachment can lead into what may start out as an innocent behavior with substances but then they're they're wily and tricky those substances and the biology of what happens when we start using them and it just escalates and escalates and then we're in real trouble. Well, I like that you're able to step away from a lot of these scripts that are so prevalent in our society. Well, you are too. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What script? That's why we're friends, John. That's why we're friends. I know. a tendency to uh, step right through boundaries and, and uh, say, what box? <laughs> exactly. There's a box. Let's be outside of it. What the heck? <laughs> Rules? Oh, yeah. Okay. You can do that if you want. <laughs> I seem to remember hearing about those. Yes. No, I good. think it's good. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for talking to me today and connecting. Oh, likewise. Thank you for listening to the Spirit Like Wellness podcast. Spirit Like Wellness is a 501c3 dedicated to health and wellness education. Learn more at spiritlikewellness.org.